Last Sunday, if you were here or you watched online, uh, you'll remember that I, I kind of hit Israel a little bit, uh, uh, kind of putting perspective on it. And I, I do think it's important, uh, depending on your news sources, um, I think it's, it's good to get um, accurate information because actually Israel is the epicenter of all world events. When you look through Bible prophecy, when you, know, you think of uh, you know, France, Australia, um, Africa, the United States, except you can go on and on. But here it's in the Middle East, and more specifically it's in this small country of Israel where things are going to wind down, really. And that's why we want to keep an eye on what goes on in Israel, because God has a heart and a passion for the Jewish people. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's going right up to 2023 and beyond. So um, if we could pull up the Israel map, um, uh, I'm just going to hit this off the top. So just to kind of get perspective uh, here's the Gaza Strip. This is where all the rockets are coming out of. This is where um, the terrorists came out of last Saturday. And uh, that's one group. Then you have um, Lebanon and Syria, and you've got Hezbollah. That's another terrorist organization. So from the north, that's Hezbollah. Hamas is in the south on, on the Gaza Strip. And so even now, uh, Hezbollah is shooting rockets in, Syria's getting involved in it. Um, and I don't, and, and so we know people that have crossed from Israel into Jordan to get out. They were on tour trips. And, uh, so they, of course, during fighting, you want to get out of a situation like that. So they were able to cross into Jordan and get flights out. So, um, and if you go to the east uh, on a map, you'll find Iraq and Iran. And, of course, Iran is, uh, they're threatening Israel not to go into, um, into Gaza. So let's go back in a little history just to put a little spin on this. Back in January 2006, the Palestinians were giving, they had ground in Israel and uh, they were having elections, and um, the Palestinians were shocked because the opposing Hamas party won the majority of seats in the Palestinian elections in the Gaza Strip. It kind of took everybody by surprise. So Hamas is a terrorist-funded organization by Iran. Back in... Um, August of 1988, Hamas wrote 36 articles uh, called the Hamas Charter. And in it, it gives the goals that they have in controlling the world. Uh, The Covenant's preamble lays out an agenda toward Israel. This is what it says. Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. And if we go to Article 13 in that charter, this is what it says. There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. And jihad, of course, is violence, uh, terrorism, etc. 
initiatives and so-called peaceful solutions in international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. They are a waste of time and exercise in futility. So, in other words, we want Israel completely annihilated. Mahoud al-Zahir, he's a Palestinian politician. He's the co-founder of Hamas, a member of the Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip right now. Said this last week, the entire planet will be under our law. There will be no more Jews or Christian traitors. The entire 510 million square kilometers of planet Earth will come under a system where there is no injustice, no oppression, no Zionism, no treacherous Christianity. Their motto, we love death as much as we, as the Jews, love life. So the question is, how do you negotiate with a group of people like that? Golda Meir, she was the fourth prime minister of Israel, I think put put it well. She said, we can forgive the Arabs for killing our children. We cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. We only will only have peace with the Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. In the Gaza Strip right now, if you've noticed, Israel's kind of, they're preparing to invade the Gaza Strip, but they're giving the Palestinians time to leave, and that's what they're doing. We want, we want you to get out so we can go after Hamas. Hamas has put blockades in the road to prevent the Palestinians from leaving. That kind of gives you a little picture of who these people really are. And so um, when you look at you know, Israel, they don't want to hurt innocent people. And so the reason why I want to just take a few moments today is because it's early in the war. And once Israel goes into the Gaza Strip, I can tell you, that the media will take photographs or videos of innocent people in the Gaza Strip and blow it out to the world to make Israel look like the guilty ones. I'm telling you, the media will spin it that way. And people that are hardcore lovers of Israel, pro-Israel, um, that commitment will be challenged. And so uh, just just to give you a heads up, when you start seeing Images coming out of uh, the Gaza Strip, just remember, um, Israel gave them time to evacuate. And, um, and so here's the question. What's going on in Israel right now? Is that Bible prophecy being fulfilled? Or is it Bible prophecy being set up? And I would lean in towards, this is not Bible prophecy, but this is Bible prophecy being set up on the world stage. It, the, things are being in positioned uh, for the next step. And, um, and so that's why we want to watch it, because you will see Bible prophecy fulfilled right before your very eyes. Um, And so with that, I would just, again, um, we need to be praying for Israel, for wisdom, for their leadership, and to know the right steps to take. 
Iran has recently told Israel to back off the Gaza Strip, otherwise they will get involved. Um, and like I mentioned, Syria, Lebanon, uh, the Gaza Strip, it's kind of Israel somewhat being surrounded by um, those people that want to destroy them. So, like I mentioned last week, when you read your Bible and you know Bible prophecy, you know Israel is not going anywhere. The terrorists want to push Israel into the sea. You'll hear them say that. We're going to force them into the sea. In other words, annihilate them. But God will intervene in every attack that Israel has. They will suffer casualties for sure, but they will not be destroyed. So you can watch that. And if you're a historian, you it'll resonate with you. So anyway... Um, With that, let's pray for Israel. Lord, once again, we are reminded in Psalm 122 where you tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, you often refer um, to Israel as the glorious land of Zion. And uh, Lord, your heart, your passion about that ground. And we, we see people that hate you, that hate the Jews. They want to destroy every remnant of that. And so we just pray for your protection and your wisdom on the leadership of this nation. And we pray for America as well, that you'll give us wisdom uh, to know the involvement, the degree of involvement we should be partaking in. And Lord, again, as followers of Christ, uh, to think that we're living in a day where Bible prophecy is being fulfilled and Bible prophecy is being set up. And you want us to know the future, Lord, not every detail, but you give us a, a photograph of what that looks like so that we're not taken unaware. So thank you for the privilege of your Bible, Lord, that you've given to us, that we can read it. Not only read it, but we can obey it. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Michael Geelan is a graduate of Cornell University. He's got degrees in physics, math, and astronomy. So you could say the dude's got it together, mentally, intellectually, right? He taught physics at Harvard. He was the science editor for ABC News. Uh, And also, he was an atheist. Now, notice he was, because this is not the end of the story. He was an atheist, but this is what started to mess in his mind. He said, the complex precision of the universe. I mean, if you start looking at all the details on how this universe operates, even the human body, man, it just takes your breath away. And it started to shake his faith in atheism. And so he became fascinated with Buddhism, Islam, Chinese mysticism. But he said, they didn't satisfy me intellectually or even emotionally. And so one day his girlfriend floated this question to him, have you ever actually read the Bible? Good question. 
And uh, I, I submit that to you today. Have you ever actually read the Bible? It's, it's something, something that we should do. And so Michael, for the next two years, uh, was committed to that. He, he read the Bible cover to cover. And um, that led to more Bible study. And he started reevaluating his worldview in the light of the person of Jesus Christ. He realized that Jesus really was the center, not only of the world, but the universe. It's all about Jesus. And we sang about him today. And so as Michael got into it, he said he was really impressed with the prophetic parts of the Bible. He got into the Bible prophecy. And so he wrote, among the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies are the ones that foretell the coming of the Messiah. Those were fulfilled in Christ, and the logic of the New Testament became unassailable. In other words, he couldn't argue with it. And um, he wrote the book, in fact, Can a Smart Person Believe in God? It's a good question. And the answer is yes. He continued, one day it finally became clear to me what that conclusion had to be. It wasn't an emotional experience for me. Rather, it was the culmination of an intellectual dawning, a gradual awakening that had begun two decades earlier at Cornell when I, an unkempt, malnourished, scientific monk, that's how he described himself, (laughs) I asked myself a simple but pointed question, how did this amazing, mostly invisible universe of ours come to be? And that haunted him. You see how God never gives up on people. He said for two decades, man, he was struggling with that thought. And he said the answer was, I now concluded it had everything to do with the loving God who spoke them into being and the resurrected Jesus who brought this loving but remote God down to earth. Aren't you glad for that? Making it possible for me, for you, for anyone to know him personally. And so Dr. Michael Geelan put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he has become a spokesperson for Jesus and his kingdom. An atheist, a former atheist, man, looking in all the wrong places, but finally opening that right door and Jesus Christ coming into his life and transforming him. So I want to challenge you today, man. You may think, hey, hey, uh, You know, I'm into Buddhism, I'm into uh, Chinese mysticism, I'm into Islam, whatever the case may be. You may be building your own religion, your own idols, man, that you carry around in your heart. You're going to keep coming up empty because it's all about Jesus. You can't shake him off. And um, that's the good news. And I want to just encourage all of us, like... Michael's girlfriend asked him, have you ever actually read the Bible? If you haven't, I want to encourage you, the days that we're living in, man, we need to drill into the Bible. We need to read it. And not only read it, but obey it, apply it to our lives. And let God do his good work. Um, The new study coming up on Wednesday night, I don't know if you saw on the tail end, uh, uh, Philippians 2.13, and I, I just want to hit, there's two verses here. First Thessalonians 2.13, they just keep, you know, sp- 
spinning, rotating in my head. First Thessalonians 2.13, therefore we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. The Bible is not mere human ideas. Paul says you accepted what we said as the very word of God. That's what the Bible is. It's the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. Paul is saying, man, if you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, let there be spiritual movement, momentum towards growing and maturing in your walk with Christ, because this word continues to work in you. You know, it's not one and done. You know, you don't read the Bible once and say, I read it, and you put it on the shelf and call it the end of the day. No, you read it and you keep on reading it because the word continues to work in you. And Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you. The word is working in you. God is working in you. What are you going to do about it? Giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Man, there's an explosion that goes off inside of you to think that the God of the universe, Jesus, whose name is above every name, he's working in you. You know, it's all right to make a little noise there, man. You know, if you're breathing air, that should get you fired up, man. Yo, that's good. That is good. And as a man, let that bellow within you. God is working in me. God's word is working in me. It's changing me. That is so good. It worked in Dr. Michael Geelan, man, and it can work in you. Stop resisting the mighty work of God in your life. So, Michael Geelan allowed Bible prophecy to work in his life, to challenge him, to renew his biblical worldview. And that's where we land with Daniel. Back to the future. So, Daniel takes us back to the future. We're going back in time because we see world history from 2023 back 2,600 years ago. We see, uh, number one, Daniel rang the doorbells. Um, That's the cool thing, man. When God answers prayer, that gets you fired up. And Daniel rang Ariok's doorbell to say, you don't have to kill us. We know what's going on with this dream. God answered God is good, he's powerful, he is king. And then he went on to ring the palace doorbell and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, God came through and we're excited to answer your dream and interpret it. So what does Daniel do? Number two, he promotes his God. And you can read those verses. Daniel, um, Nebuchadnezzar's freaking out because that dream is tormenting him. And when you look at the statue, when Daniel gives a picture of what this statue looks like, this statue is not running a race. It's, he's not in combat. He's not, he's not on ground where he's under attack. He's standing there. And you'd say, man, that's pretty boring. How would you like to have a dream where you see a statue? 
One minute, 10 minutes, 40 minutes. That statue's not doing anything. I'd say I'd wake up and go get a drink of water. (laughs) Try sleeping all over again. So, but that's not the end of the dream. Because Daniel goes on to say that a rock that came out of a mountain, not by human hands, but by really divine origin. In other words, that rock was not man-made. It was divine. It was supernatural. And that rock was thrown at the base of that statue, and it destroyed it from the top down. And so uh, we see that picture of the statue, number three. Verse 34, as you watched, the rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. And the whole statue was crushed in small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. If you have your Bibles, I would say you want to circle that word became. Because just like we just read in 1 Thessalonians, this word continues to work. For God is working. You see, it's, it's an action word. It's not done. It's not finished. There's no, it's not final. It says it became a grain mountain. In other words, that, that rock was growing. You ever see a rock grow? You know, with kids, you can go to the store and buy those little gizmo things. You know, the rock that grows, what do you do? Put it in water and it... You go to bed at night and you hope it keeps, doesn't keep growing, you know, and throws you out of your house. No, they don't get that big, but don't they have rocks that do that? Something. Something. So this is the imagery that Daniel is giving the king. Number four, the statue described, that was the dream. Now we'll tell the king what it means, what it means. And of course, that got Nebuchadnezzar all fired up because now he can finally learn the meaning of what he thought was a nightmare. In verse 37b, this is, I've been thinking a lot about this as well. How did Daniel keep perspective in a pagan country, Babylon, the world power of the day, the most powerful nation in the world in that day? Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. He would kill at will anybody that got in his way. The occult was part of the the nation's religion. How did Daniel thrive in that culture? You see it over and over again, and we see it in verse 37b. What's he saying? The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar, you might think you're the coolest dude on the planet because you're king of the world power right now. But let me tell you, oh king, it's God that gave you the power that you have. It's the God from heaven. He's the one that puts you in that office. So I say this, how did Daniel keep his perspective? Perspective, He kept promoting God. 
When you, when you watch him from Daniel 1 all the way through, he keeps promoting God. He keeps his eyes on God. And how are you going to thrive? How am I going to thrive in this culture today? It's by putting our eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's right. We fix our eyes. We don't dilly-dally, well, I'll get around to it, you know? No, no. You have to be intentional. I'm going to fix my eyes on him. That's how you're going to thrive. That's how Daniel did it. So, are you ready? Here's some blanks we can fill in. Five kingdoms. Number one, Babylon. And next to that, you could put, it's the head, it's gold. Let's read verse 37. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. And Daniel finishes it here. King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That's where you are. You're not the whole statue. You're just the head. And so Daniel starts with Babylon, and he reminds the king again, it's God that put him in that position. God gave him the kingdom. Jeremiah 27.5 puts it this way, God is saying this, with my great strength and powerful arm, I made the earth and all its people and every animal. Can we pause right here? Those of you that are struggling with evolution, man, you think, you think, you know, the Big Bang, boo! That's how it all came about. You came walking out of a zoo or a swamp or something. You struggling with that? You can go to bed tonight and sleep well if you listen to this verse and you apply it to your life. With my great strength, God says, and powerful arm, I made the earth. Who made the earth? And all its people? And every animal who made it? There it is. It's done. Michael Geelan, you know, he had a struggle through all these doctorate programs. Teach it Harvard. He could just simplify his life from the beginning if he read that verse and said, yes, I believe it. Right? God made you. God made everything. It's his powerful arm. And I tell you what, man, that's so cool. And it says, I can give these things of mine to anyone I choose. Now I will give your countries to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who is my servant, I have put everything, even the wild animals, under his control. You see it? God's in control. Things just don't happen. So Daniel tells him, man, you're king because of God. God. God's in control. Babylonians, here's, a, here's something. They love the animals. They love the, the, the animal kingdom. And, and uh, Babylon had a lot of zoos in, in, that, in that country. Why did Daniel get thrown into a lion's den? Because that was part of the zoo. They had lions in a cage. You think I'm joking? No, I'm not joking. That's why there was a lion's den, because they, cap- they captivated animals. 
They felt we have control over the animal kingdom. And so um, Daniel concludes, you're the, you're the head of gold. And then he moves on. You see, he doesn't spend a lot of time there patting Nebuchadnezzar on the back. He just, he's putting clarity on this. Number two, the Medo Persian uh, country. That's the chest and the arms, and that's the silver, verse 39a. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise and take your place. That's interesting. Silver is precious, but it's not as valuable as gold. You can just look at the markets today. Gold is definitely worth more. And in uh, 539 BC, the Medo Persian Empire diverted the Euphrates River and entered the great walled city of Babylon by night. And so Babylon was a world power for only 65 years. And it virtually fell overnight. And it's interesting that this kingdom rose even though it was inferior to Babylon. You think, how can that happen? You would think a country would have to overpower the most powerful. No, they were inferior, and yet, and yet they, they defeated them. So how does that happen? It happens because it's not by human strength. It's by the hand of God. Can we hit the pause button again? Yes? All right. How about America, the founding of America? How did we defeat the world power? Hmm? How did that happen? It was God. When you read history, accurate history, and the founding of our country, you'll find that God was, he intervened over and over and over again to defeat the world power of England because that's what he wanted. And God is God, and you're not. Are you okay with that? Yes. Three, grease, belly, thighs, bronze. That's where we're moving down the statue. 39b, after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. In 331 BC, a young Greek by the name of Alexander, in fact, we can call him Alexander the Great, he swept across the world in his day, and the Greek empire ruled the known world. Alexander took the throne of Greece when he was 20 years old. He was a young man. You know, you think of Daniel was 15 when he got exiled into Babylon. Alexander was 20. He died at 32. And before he died, he wept that there were no more worlds to conquer. It was the end. The kingdom of Greece, which Alexander the Great claimed to have conquered, didn't stand forever did it? Because Daniel moves on to the fourth kingdom right after that. He's moving us through history of mankind. We're moving up to 600 BC, moving towards the time of Christ. Number four, Rome, verses 40 through 43. It's the feet, the toes, which are iron and clay. Following that kingdom, what kingdom? Greece. There will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. And so, again, when you look at the statue working your way down, we're down by the feet. Do you remember where that rock hit that statue? It hit Rome. 
And it happened to be, when you look, it's the weakest down by the feet. It's, it's clay um, and iron. There's a mixture. And so Daniel spends more time on number four here in the text because we see that Rome conquered Greece in 146 B.C. The Roman legions began their conquest, crushing everything in their way. And it was a nation of iron. It was a war machine that went on to conquer the world. Verse 40b, we see, smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. And so this mixture of iron and clay, it, it doesn't make for a strong element. Uh, how many of you took ceramics in high school, man? Uh, wasn't that fun? <laughs> it's where we learned a lot, where we can apply it to our modern world today. And you remember creating these little gizmos and you put them in the kiln, you know, and the kiln gets fired up and uh, that clay's got to get heated to a certain temperature. Then you let it cool, you take it out of the kiln and then you drop it. <laughs> and what happens when you drop it? It breaks. It's not fiberglass. No, it breaks, explodes. And that's the imagery we see that the combination that Daniel's writing about here, it's the iron and bay clay, the ceramic, it's, it's brittle. And when you look at the Rome today, you can see the ruins here uh, on the screen. Um, are those ruins? Yeah. How about, how about the, the stadium? Let's go to the stadium here. There it is, the Colosseum. Um, that's a ruin. And people, people pay money to go in those ruins. But they're not, they're not fixed. They're not operating as, as buildings and government buildings today. No, they're just ruins. And so when you look at the strength of the statue from gold down to clay on the bottom and the rock hitting the feet, and the entire structure falls down. Really, it, it appears that it's going after evolution of our day because um, Darwin says humans will get better and better over time. But really, it undermines the, the whole thought of evolution that actually humanity is getting darker and darker over time. Yes or no? Yeah, that's right. Most of the events in Nebuchadnezzar's dream have been fulfilled. You know, his 26-year-old dream has been coming true. You can trust the Bible. And uh, that leads us to number five, God's great kingdom. Man, this is where I like to put a flag in the ground. God's. Great kingdom. Don't you guys get fired up over that? Huh? Doesn't it sound like, yeah, man, God's great kingdom. God's great kingdom. High five, man. Shoulder bump. Come on. Come on. Right? God's great kingdom. I mean, think about it, man. If it, it... if it was something wimpy out there, I mean, how could you get fired up over that? You know? God's great 
kingdom. Verse 44, during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. Aren't you glad you're part of that kingdom? It will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness. And it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. God will come and set up his kingdom. You see, let's take a look at this picture here, the artist's rendering of the rock. Boom. That's the best they could do. They didn't have their iPhone cameras back then, so so that's the best they could do. Not too bad. Hmm? And when that, that stone, that rock comes, it pushes all the other kingdoms aside. And um, the rocks cut from a mountain, not by human hands, referring to that rock was sent by God. God ordained that. Who's the rock? Let's answer that question. Who's the rock? The Aramaic, Aramaic word and the Hebrew word that's translated rock here and all through the Old Testament is used as a symbol or a metaphor for the Messiah, for the coming king, Jesus. Isaiah 28, 16, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. Where, where does it say it's going to be? In Jerusalem, right? What's going on in Jerusalem today? Do you see what we're talking about? Bible prophecy. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Where did Isaiah get that verse from? He, he took it from Psalm 118. Let's see what that says. Open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. It's wonderful to see. Matthew 21, Jesus telling a parable saying that he, he's a rock. It's a landowner that has a vineyard, and it's harvest time, and he sends people to gather the harvest, and uh, the servants grabbed these people and killed them. Verse 37, finally the owner sent his son, thinking that his son would be Jesus. Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes an heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asks, what do you think he will do with those farmer? And notice the religious leaders are part of this conversation. They replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. And Jesus floats this question. He asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? In other words, don't you see that I am the Messiah? 
I have come from my father. It's harvest time. Don't you see that? And he goes on, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. Where did Jesus get that from? Psalm 118. You see, he's saying, I am the rock. I'm the rock. Jesus is saying to these spiritual religious leaders of their day, dudes, you should know the answer to this question. But you're so arrogant and full of pride that you think you have all the answers and you still don't even recognize me as the Messiah. Matthew 21, 43 says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from who? You. You think you have the kingdom of God? You're you're the Jews. You should have it. But you still don't see me as the Messiah. I'm going to take it away from you and give it to the nation that will produce the proper fruit. Who are those who produce fruit? John 15, 5 answers that question. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce what? Much fruit. You see that? So what Jesus is saying, you guys, you've had the answer right along and you've missed it. You think you are so spiritual, but you're blind. And I will give it to those who have put their faith in me. I'm the vine, they're the branches. When they produce the fruit, that's honoring to me. So those aligned with Jesus and his kingdom produce the fruit that he's talking about here. And when we produce fruit, guess what? That's a sign that we're part of his kingdom. Aren't you glad about that? So good. So Jesus takes the rock from Daniel 2 and he applies it to himself in the New Testament. He's the rock. Who is the king? It's Jesus. When will the kingdom of Jesus happen? Daniel 2.44, during the reigns of these kings, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. He will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. Those kings that Daniel wrote about are the kings from Rome because Jesus came He was born in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, when Caesar Augustus was king. These are the kings that he's talking about during the time of his birth and his life on planet Earth. And it says that rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. So those kings refer to the Roman Empire. And that rock coming would be the first coming of Jesus, the time of the Roman Empire. That's when that happened. So the mountain, this mountain, that it became a great mountain, became. In other words, it's becoming. It's in the process. It's growing. It's growing. It's growing into a great mountain that covered what? The whole earth. The whole earth. Not part of the earth. The whole earth. The mountain represents the growth of the church of Jesus Christ in the world. That's the mountain. You are part of that mountain. I think we should sing a song about that. I am part of the mountain of God. Well, think about it this afternoon, and we'll come back next Sunday, we'll sing the song. Okay? Everybody good with that? Yeah, man. 
It became. And so we know that Jesus was born. In verse 44b, the God of heaven, check this out, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. Aren't you glad you're part of a kingdom like that? You know, will this kingdom come and go? Will it, you know, burn out, flare out, whatever? That word set up means to establish, to initiate, to get it started. And so we see that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. When Jesus came, he set up the kingdom on earth. You're part of that kingdom. And that mountain is growing. The mountain is spread through his church. I would like to just kind of highlight a few things about this mountain that's growing. This mountain is growing in 2023. Yes or no? It is. I read an article, I'm not going to mention the dude's name, but he's a former worship leader who deconstructed his faith a few years ago. The singer-songwriter took to Instagram to announce that he's looking for a church to attend. The announcement might have come as a surprise to some, as the once-renowned worship leader publicly deconverted from Christianity a number of years ago. Nevertheless, this person has more recently expressed interest in recapturing certain elements of his Christian heritage. He has said that during the COVID-19 pandemic, he began to reminisce. In other words, he, used to, he would go in the back of his mind about the worship music he used to love. He said, I was raised as a pastor's kid. I became a worship leader. I began to tour the world as a worship leader. I got awards, recognition. And then I very publicly sort of deconstructed my faith, my beliefs anyway, and it became a bit of a black sheep in the music industry. And for a long time, I have stayed away from the, all things that are Christian. Is that the end of the story? No. And then I began to, after a lot of searching through different religions, and traditions, and practices. Who does that remind you of, by the way? Michael Gullen, right? The atheist. Yeah. Began to rediscover aspects of my own upbringing that I loved, and now I've kind of come full circle, where I actually find a lot of beauty in the tradition that surrenders oneself to God. Isn't that cool? The mountain is growing. This dude checks out of the mountain, but God didn't give up on him. And he is coming back to faith. That's the kind of God we have. Lee Grady writes this. Last week I hosted a men's discipleship conference in Jacksonville, Florida. Guys from 18 states and a few foreign countries enjoyed three days of meals. You see he hits meals on the front end there. 
He knows guys, right? That's, yeah, guys. Yeah. Fellowship and encouraging sermons. The guys sang loudly. Should we read that again? The guys sang loudly. Yeah. Rah. And it got rowdy during break times. But you could hear a pin drop during a panel discussion about sexual purity on Friday night. The first guy in the panel told how his wife caught him looking at pornography and how the exposure led to his freedom from sex addiction. Another guy got transparent about his ongoing battle with pornography and how he found fresh grace to resist the temptation. Another man shared how childhood bullying and a distant father led to same-sex attraction, yet because of his Christian faith, he found the power to resist those feelings. He got married and had kids. A fourth guy told how he lived in a gay relationship until he found Jesus and married his wife. Grady says, it was refreshing to hear these men talk openly about their struggles. Nobody was critical. Of the two men who were honest about the homosexuality, they weren't labeled or put down. Later in the evening, after a clear and compassionate message on sexual purity, guys streamed to the altar for prayer. They wanted freedom from many different things, porn addictions, the shame of adultery, homosexual lust, fornication, and other sins. And Grady concludes, spiritual chains were shattered because the men repented and asked Jesus for forgiveness and healing. This morning, friends, the mountain is growing. And it will cover the earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of that mountain. Not shrinking, it's growing. And one day it's going to cover the earth. And we have the privilege of living for a kingdom that will never go away. It's going to last forever. And so, God's great kingdom. This morning, I just want to encourage you, if you're not part of that, you can look to the cross and say, Jesus, you took my place on the cross. You were my substitute. You paid my sin debt in full. And because you want to have a relationship with me, that's why you did it. And so, Lord, I want to have a relationship with you. Forgive me of my sin this morning. Thank you for taking my place. And right here, right now, I'm putting all my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you today for your great work. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a God who has a great kingdom and we're part of it. We thank you, Lord, that this mountain is growing. This rock that became as a rock is now a mountain and it continues to grow and eventually it will cover the earth. Help us, Lord, to represent you well as Daniel represented you in Babylon. For Lord, we considered it a privilege to do that. And, here, and those this morning, Lord, who maybe put their trust in you for the first time, we pray that they will engage at the opportunities they have to grow in their faith 
at Life Church. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.